Welcome to the Jesus on Prophecy audio resource for the Monroe, Michigan site. Here you will find all the messages from the Jesus on Prophecy series. If these messages are a blessing to you, please share them with your friends and family. We pray all of these resources will encourage you to study God's Word as never before. Before we begin this evening, I invite us to have a word of prayer. Father, thank you for giving us time. Thank you that this evening we have chosen to invest our time in you, in your word. And Father, I, I press before your throne the promise that when we seek, when we knock, when we, Father, ask, you will give in abundance. And tonight we ask once again for your spirit to be our guide into all truth. That what we study tonight, Father, will not just be information, but things that will penetrate deeply and transform us. Father, these blessings I ask to honor and glorify your name. In the name of Jesus, amen, Father. There's been a lot of talk about terrorism in over the last couple of decades in our country. And words such as insurgents and terrorists and um, uh, uh, groups in the fringes, fanatics, uh, all those things have become loaded words. But I remember exactly where I was at when this event took place. And this event to me personally stands out as a U.S. citizen. This event stands out from all other terrorist events or attempts we've had in our country because... All the other ones have been done by individuals from other countries. Do you remember where you were on this day when this, this took place? Um, Oklahoma, in Oklahoma City. Um, April 19, 1995, Timothy McVeigh. He was a U.S. citizen, someone we would have never expected or suspected. Other countries that have beef with us, other countries that hold to other philosophical views of communism, etc. We could understand them wanting to bring us harm or do us harm, but one of our own, one of our own, that, that made it very difficult to process, very difficult to accept. But this is a reality that we see in our country, and it's, it's uh, a bit of a a reference point to help us understand something happens sometimes in people's minds. Timothy McVeigh probably grew up in just a regular home, you know, going to school, saying allegiance to the flag, flag uh, learning U.S. history, all these things that all of us do while we, as we grew up in this country. And something happened. Something happened in the land of the free and the land where he had a lot of opportunities, where he could have done so many things in the arts, in business, technology, all these uh, doors that are open in our country for people to, to, uh, for people to take advantage of, something happened in the mind of Timothy McVeigh that though he was a U.S. citizen, for whatever reasons, he decided to harm. And his harm was not directed sp exclusively to grown-ups. What he did ended up uh, hurting more than just adults. He injured 450 people, 168 were, were di uh, died, 
And this building was right across the street from a daycare center. And the force of the explosion, as it projected itself forward, took the lives of 19 children. So his act definitely had the effect he desired, the terror. But it included individuals that have nothing to do with whatever anger, whatever frustration he may have had to this country. There were individuals that had nothing to do with it that paid for it. But in the background, this and many other aspects of human history have plagued individuals with questions, both unbelievers and believers alike. When things like this happen, there's a short passage in the Bible that's in 1 John chapter 4, verse 8 that says, God is what, my friends? Love. God is love. And then we see what we see. And of course, there are other passages that speaks about God as being almighty, all-powerful, that He is in control. And so people have a difficult time understanding that if God is all-powerful and He is in control and He is a God of love, then why is there evil? This picture, um, when I was putting this message together, my brain saw it before I could find it. When the news were highlighting and repeating the events, that's the image that stuck with me because it wasn't an adult. It wasn't someone that had been grown. It was a life cut short too soon. I don't know if you've ever been to a funeral home and seen those smaller caskets. The caskets designed for babies. The caskets designed for children. That's painful. And when those things touch our lives, we find that we thought we had answers. But maybe we don't. And maybe our faith begins to get shaken. And certainly there's an adversary ready to whisper into our ears doubt in regards to God's statement that He is a God of love. Last night we saw that the book of Revelation offers us uh, multiple visions or revelations of Jesus, and in the end, what we have to find is a consistent picture. And I said this last night, and I'll repeat it again throughout the series. The same Jesus that we find in in the four Gospels is the same Jesus that we will find in the book of Revelation. And if you're reading the book of Revelation and you come up with a different Jesus, there's something wrong. The Rubik's Cube is not being played right. And we're going to be looking tonight, again, at the six keys that will help us be consistent with our interpretation of the Bible, specifically the prophetic books, and specifically the book of Revelation, which is a book that, for many people, uh, creates great intrigue. So we're going to look um, at the six keys. We already looked at two last night. We saw how the book of Revelation is highly symbolic. Who remembers where most of the symbols come from? What part of the Bible? Old Testament, the Old Testament, great. Uh, We saw that most of it, uh, 75% of it, in fact, comes from the Old Testament. And without any knowledge or familiarity with the Old Testament, it will be very difficult, if not impossible, to interpret the book of Revelation correctly. Tonight, we're going to see some of these order structures that I told you about last evening, how the book of Revelation has these very beautiful, intricate structures built into it. We're also going to be looking at the Christ-centeredness of these prophecies, how it uses sanctuary imagery, and of course, that it has historical applications. So tonight, we're going to be looking at the order structures of the book of Revelation. Some examples, we're not going to have time, even in these series, to look at all of these. But in the book of Revelation, you have uh, sets of sevens. You have seven churches, seven seals, seven trumpets, 
seven last plagues, seven blessings scattered throughout the book. So when people at first glance, yes, when you first read it through, your brain has a hard time putting some sort of order or sequence to the book. It seems to be going somewhere and all of a sudden it shifts and it goes here and there. But as you become familiar with the book, you will begin to see these patterns of sevens emerging. That's why last night the appeal was, blessed is he or she who reads. The Bible doesn't expect you to understand everything the first time around, but you will get a better sense of it the more you read it, the more you spend time reading through it. It's only 22 chapters long, and so it shouldn't take us too long to read it. Each of these seven churches, an even closer example, looking at the seven churches listed in the book of Revelation, um, each of these seven churches found in Revelation chapters 2 and 3, all of them have this same pattern. They all begin with a description of Jesus. There's an evaluation that Jesus gives to each church, which always begins with the phrase, I know. There's a section of praise or correction given by Jesus to the church. There's counsel, warnings from the Spirit to the church. And then there's a promise to the church. And that's when I told you last night that in the counsel warning part, it always begins to, with the phrase, let him who has ears to hear, let him hear. So you, you see that even in the seven churches, there are patterns of structures that helps us understand where we are in the sequence of events. So this highly structured part of the book of Revelation escapes many people because we're not familiar. Plus, it was written in a time and culture different from ours. We are accustomed to a Western style of narrative, whereas this was written with a Hebrew mindset. Even though the book of Revelation is written in Greek, it was written by a Jew. And I don't know if there's anyone here that speaks a second language or you have another mother tongue, but I grew up in Spanish, and so when I translate sometimes from English to Spanish or vice versa, there are idioms that you should not be translating literally. For example, if I'm translating from an English speaker to a Spanish audience and the English speaker says, don't pull my leg, we don't say it like that in Spanish. Spanish people want to be like, oh, that's awkward. Uh, <laughs> and vice versa. If I told you things that we say in Spanish, in, I, I'm not going to tell you because it's weird. It just makes no sense at all. I'll tell you one-on-one if you're curious. <laughs> but the book of Revelation is written from a, a Jewish Hebrew perspective, and there's a signature Hebrew style that we find in the Bible, most specifically in the Psalms. The Psalms are all poetic, and Hebrew poetry doesn't emphasize what we emphasize in the English language. When we say things in English, a poem is known because it rhymes phonetically, right? The ending sounds have to be the same. Uh, roses are red, violets are blue. All of you know that I love pizza, right? <laughs> Does that rhyme? No, it's supposed to be that I love you, right? Well, in the Hebrew, it doesn't go that way. What the Hebrews rhyme, listen carefully, are not sounds but thoughts. So even in Hebrew, the Psalms do not always rhyme phonetically, but they rhyme with thought. They echo the same thing that you say it a little different. And within that structure of Hebrew poetic methods, we have this um, structure called a chiastic structure, and it is found in the entire book of Revelation. And I think all of us are asking, what in the world is a chiastic structure? It's not a difficult thing. I always like to joke about this because 
most of the, the reason I have to explain so much to you guys is because of scholars. Scholars, for whatever reason, they're just gifted individuals that make something th simple very complicated. And so here we are trying to figure out what it means. Chiastic structure comes from the uh, Greek letter chi. It looks like an X, but this is actually how it is pronounced, chi. And I mean, if you've been to school or you've been to fraternities, etc., you know that this letter is actual alpha, right? This is pi. If you, you took math classes, you guys remember pi? That number that never repeats itself. Um, and you may have seen that in the math book, but the reason they would call it pi, they were just simply saying that letter in Greek. It's the letter P. And this letter is just simply pronounced he. And there's a reason why scholars picked that letter. In our alphabet, what letter does it look like? Yeah. The letter X, which would have been a lot simpler for us. I wouldn't have to explain all of this to you tonight. Uh, chiasm is a typical Hebrew literary form, especially seen in poetic and apocalyptic writings. And that apocalyptic is synonymous to prophetic. And here's an example. It's a very simple phrase. The Lord is loving, merciful is our God. There are some psalms that read like this. Um, but what a Hebrew person would do is take those phrases and make it into a poem by creating an inverse. They would say it in this way, but in the next stanza, they would reverse it. And the last part of this phrase will become the first, and the first part of the phrase will become the last, thus forming a what kind of letter? X. An X. And that's where the he comes from, and that's where the chiastic structure comes from. All it means is you said the same thing, but in reverse, creating this X. And so I highlighted for ease of um, identification, the Lord is loving. And what this does, the, the value of this is, if you read now the book of Psalms, now that you know this, whenever you see a phrase that is repeated, what this helps you do is understand words. Because a word is used here, but then another word will be used here. And if you were not sure what this word meant, this word will help you figure it out. In, in, in an example, you would read in Hebrew, this would be Elohim. But this word would be Yahweh or Jehovah, as some translated, translations have it. So from this little stanza, you would know that Elohim and Yahweh are the same ways to refer to the same God. And you would know that this Yahweh, Elohim, he's a loving God. But what, what does that mean that he is loving? What are some of the attributes? Well, one of the attributes is that he is what? Merciful. So as you read the Psalms, knowing that this structure exists will help you study in ways that you never have before. Is this helpful? Are you, do you guys understand so far? Are you, are you tracking? All right. Awesome. Praise the Lord. Um, again, Western-style narratives, any movie, any novel that you read, any program that you watch goes like this. You have you know, the season kickoff, you have the development of, of the plot, but the big kaboom is at the end, right? That's when the hero and the villain meet each other, and they have that wrestling match, and it seems like the villain is going to win, but then all of a sudden the good guy you know, does something and he wins, he gets the girl, right? And then we're all happy with tears. Oh, why didn't know? Why wasn't it happen? This movie ends like every other, right? But I did not know how this one was going to end. All, all, all Western-style narratives, the big punchline is at the end, but not in Hebrew. When Jewish people would write, their big narrative was right smack in the middle. That's where all the fireworks would be. 
And the way that they would write it is instead of going A, B, C, D, boom, is at the end, they would begin with introduction of the plot, a development, the big climax, an echo of the development, and an echo of the beginning. And it was normal for them to think this way. They actually would look for the punchline, the big climactic point of the story to be in the middle, not at the end. And all of this falls under the canopy of the chiastic structure, which is why sometimes the Bible is difficult for us to read because we're looking for the big, big punchline at the end of the narrative when it's actually right in the middle. Does that make sense? All right. Hopefully it's not clear as mud. So again, when you flip it to the side, it does make it look like an X. I, I was happy to figure this out when I went to seminary because it did help me uh, enrich my study of the scriptures. And don't worry about copying this next chart because it is in your handout. I realize it's quite a bit to write. I used to not include it, and then I would see people scrambling trying to write it, and I thought, you know, it'd be easier just to put it in the handout. But this is what it means. If you were looking at it wondering what in the world is this, this is a summary of the entire book of Revelation. It begins with a prologue, continuing with promises to the overcomers. Then it goes into God's work for humanity's salvation, followed by God's wrath, but it is mixed with mercy. There's a commission to give a prophetic message. And then there is this middle section right here, a great war between Christ and Satan, followed by a proclaiming of end-time prophetic messages, then continuing with God's final wrath, but this time, it is unmixed with mercy. Continuing with God's work for humanity's salvation is completed. There is a fulfillment of the promises to the overcomers, and it finishes with an epilogue. And maybe you've seen this already, but each of these sections are an echo of the previous ones. The prologue echoes almost identical to the epilogue of the book of Revelation. The promises to the overcomers find their fulfillment at the end of the book. God's work for humanity's salvation finds its completion, but it echoes, it follows with. God's wrath mixed with mercy is echoed by God's final wrath unmixed with mercy. The commission to give a prophetic message is echoed here by the specific kind of end-time prophetic message. But at the heart of the book of Revelation, there is one section that does not have an echo. That is smack in the middle, which is how a Hebrew individual, a Jewish person would write it. I want you to know what is the most, the hinge, the theme, the punchline of this whole book. The reason I'm writing this book, the reason Jesus gave this book to John is so that anyone that reads it will discover this theme right here. The great war between Christ and Satan for a reason. The book of Revelation is a tender narrative given by God himself because God's, God knows the plight of human experience down here. God knows what his children have to go through, and God knows what those people that have no clue that he even exists have to go through. Every human being suffers on planet Earth. And before, long before Timothy McVeigh did what he did, I can guarantee you that there were people asking themselves, God, if the preacher says that you are a God of love, then why does my child, why do I, what have I? And those questions have plagued humanity for millennia. And the book of Revelation offers the answer. The, the big point of the book of Revelation is to answer the question, if God is love, where did evil come from? 
In the heart of the book of Revelation, we find the cosmic universal war waged between God and this individual called the adversary, the enemy. This is the central point in this prophetic book because we have become part of this cosmic war between good and evil. And we just take a close glimpse, quick glimpse at this war. Revelation chapter 12, 7 through 9 mentions it very explicitly. And war broke out where? In the Middle East? In Iraq? <laughs> when you thought of heaven, what did you think of? Growing up, you know, I thought of birds, happy, uh, trees, pizza, right? <laughs> a tree of pizza. <laughs> Golden streets. And everybody's happy. But the book of Revelation introduces heaven with a very different, shocking introduction. It says that there was war that broke out, meaning there was a time where this war was not in existence, but something happened that a war took place out of all places in heaven. Michael and his angels fought with a dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought. But they, the dragon and his angels, did not prevail, nor was a place found for them in heaven any longer. So this idea that heaven was this you know, utopia of, of happiness is false. The Bible explains that something brought disharmony and a war in heaven. And this is, this is not even hinting at or alluding at anything remotely close to Star Trek or Star Wars. So don't go there, okay? That's not the kind of war we're speaking of here, the Bible's speaking of. So the great dragon was cast out, of that, cast out that serpent of old called, called the devil and Satan. I'm going to spend a little time right here. Um, it helped me a lot to know that these are not actual names, but nouns. Um, this word is Hebrew. And actually, sorry, this, this word is Greek. The devil is Greek, the Greek word. Satan is the Hebrew word, and they both mean the same thing, enemy or adversary. So when the Bible speaks about Satan, it's actually saying literally the enemy, the adversary. So, but it's just using Hebrew words. Um, so these two words are speaking of the same individual, and look at how the book of Revelation in this little section already helps us understand symbols. So the great dragon... Is that phrase symbolic or literal? Symbolic. The great dragon was cast out, that serpent of old. There's a serpent being mentioned there. And this serpent has two names, devil and Satan. So who is that great dragon? Satan, the devil. So whenever you see the dragon mentioned in the book of Revelation, you know that this is Revelation speaking about who, what person, what individual? Satan. Satan. So even in the very, very small spaces, you have the book of Revelation helping you understand and interpret it through the Bible itself, not outside sources. He was cast to the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. So in this, these just short two verses, I'm a very inquisitive individual. I've always been this way my parents tell me, and that's the reason my dad tells me he has so much white hair. Because I drilled him, questioning him about everything and anything. It wasn't just when I was three. It was all throughout my teenage years and young adult life, which has some benefits because as I read the Bible, I read this narrative, and I had two major questions. When I read about this war in heaven and that God, to solve the problem, cast that dragon and his angels where? To the earth. And I'm not sure if you have questions right now, 
Maybe as you are understanding how the Bible is starting to describe to us this origin of evil, this war in heaven, I have two questions. Why was there war in heaven? Did you guys think of that question? I thought of that question. Why, why heaven? I can understand the Middle East. I can understand, you know, some areas, some neighborhoods. But why was there war in heaven? And more, even more importantly, if there was a troublemaker up there, why send him down here? Isn't the universe kind of big? Isn't it kind of like infinite? Couldn't he have cast him somewhere where there's a black hole and just lock him up there? Why was Satan cast down here? We're going to tackle these. Actually, the Bible is going to answer for us these two questions this evening. To begin with, we're going to start with the words of Jesus himself. Jesus, after he's giving um, talks about, you know, end times and end time events, he gives this parable. Another parable Jesus put forth to them saying, the kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed what kind of seed? Good seed in his field. Later on, he goes to identify that that good uh, individual sowing good seed is himself. It's God. God casts good seed. But while men slept, his enemy. What other two words could we have used there instead of enemy? Satan and devil. Because devil is the Greek and Satan is the Hebrew word. You got it. And actually in the Greek, that's diabolos right there, diabolos, where we get devil from. His enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went his way. So the servants of the owner came and said to him, Sir, did you not sow what kind of seed? Good seed in your field? How then does it have tares? He said to them, who's done it? An enemy. In this parable, this brief parable, Jesus helps us to begin to understand a monumental question, a monumental answer to our huge question, very important question. Who's done all of this? Who's responsible for this? Jesus emphatically says, an enemy has done this. It was not me. I am not responsible. But God does not just give empty words as the reasons or as the answers. There's much evidence that God provides as to why. Let's begin tonight looking at who is this enemy. Revelation chapter 12, verses 7 through 9, we've already looked at this. The great dragon was cast out, that serpent of all called the devil and Satan who deceives the whole world. So this great dragon was cast out, that serpent of all called the devil and Satan. Uh, this is why there was war in heaven and Obviously, he was cast out from there. Who is this individual? Remember how we talked about how the book of Revelation draws immensely from the Old Testament? These are some of the places where the book of Revelation draws imagery and and, and, uh, meaning from. Isaiah chapter 14, verses 12 through 14 says, How you are falling from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning. How you are cut down to the ground, for you have set in your heart. And before we go any further... You know, Hollywood has done quite a job in messing us up when it comes to reading our Bible. Lucifer is not an evil name. Lucifer does not mean man dressed in red with horns. Lucifer has the translation from the Hebrew um, is two words, two Latin words, actually. It's not even translated from the Greek or Hebrew. It's from the Latin. Luz, if you know Spanish, does anyone know Spanish? You know what luz means? Light. Light. And fur is Latin, um, it's a, a suffix that means bearer. 
Like, have you guys known of the name called Christopher? That first part of that name is like, a compound name made up of two, two words, Christ, fur, which means the one who carries Christ in his heart, the one who carries Christ. Lucifer means the carrier or the bearer of light. These, this being had a most precious and powerful mission. It was his destiny, his job, so to speak, to reveal things about God. Revealed truth about God's character. That was this being's original creation. That's, what, that's why he was created for, to reveal God's love and God's character. Yet in Isaiah, we're told that Lucifer, um, the morning, was cut down to the ground. Oops. You said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will also sit on the mount of the congregation. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like who? God. Now, listen carefully. These words were not in the mouth of Lucifer, but were where? In his heart. They were in his heart, meaning things took time to develop. You know, when Jesus spoke about you shall not murder in Matthew chapter 5, he says, you have heard of all that it was said to you, you shall not murder, but I tell you that if you're angry. Why would Jesus equate anger and say there's a direct line between ang anger and murder? Because where do you experience anger? In your fist or your heart? In your heart. But if you let anger linger in your heart long enough, where is it going to spill out in? Right? The words that were in these sentiments that were in Lucifer's heart he did not reject. He did not resist. He harbored them. He allowed them to grow and develop over time. And eventually these thoughts, these mysterious thoughts, began to take uh, fruit in open rebellion. Satan would begin to say words of insinuation, words about... I mean, he was the one that if there was questions about God, Lucifer certainly knew because... His name bore his purpose. I am the light bearer. Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Now, Lucifer was supposed to be revealing the character of God, but instead now Lucifer began to insinuate things that would lead to doubt, to question God, because he wanted to take the place of God. Ezekiel sheds further light. Ezekiel chapter 28, verses 12 through 19. You were the seal of what? Perfection. When the Creator made this being called Lucifer, He made him perfect. And He didn't just make him perfect, but He placed him in a perfect environment of joy, happiness, and unending, unconditional love. And yet this being mysteriously begins to entertain thoughts that make no sense. Thoughts that are not congruent with reality. You were the seal of perfection, full of wisdom, and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden. Remember how Revelation calls Satan that serpent of old? Uh, meaning the serpent that long ago was spoken of. You know how far back does that reference us back to? The book of Genesis. In Genesis chapter 3, you have humanity dialoguing with a serpent. But now we know who was behind that serpent. 
It was this being sealed in perfection. He was in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering. You were that anointed cherub who covers. I established you. You were on the holy mountain of God. You walked back and forth in the midst of the fiery stones. This being was made glorious, perfect, precious, beautiful. This is that same being that we will read in a little bit was found in the Garden of Eden. Something happened to this individual. You were perfect in your ways from the days you were created till iniquity was found in you. What Ezekiel doesn't tell us, Ezekiel tells us what Isaiah doesn't. Ezekiel tells us this covering cherub was created perfect, beautiful. But what Isaiah tells us is what Ezekiel doesn't. Ezekiel says, till iniquity was found in you. That iniquity, that sin, was that Lucifer said in his heart, I shall be like who? Like the Most High, God. That's the iniquity. That's why we need every part of the Bible. That's why the Bible says all Scripture is profitable. We can't just take one phrase here and one phrase there. We need to see how all of these things blend together. You were perfect in your ways from the days you were created until iniquity was found in you. That is the process by which Lucifer became Satan. Lucifer became the devil. Lucifer became the enemy. The enemy that where God had cast good seed, this enemy began to cast evil seed. It was his doing. And I'm going to pause right here because I don't want to forget to make this point, and I'll probably make it later on in the seminar. Listen carefully. The Bible will answer the question of how sin and evil came into existence in the universe, but the Bible doesn't tell us why. You know why? Because there is no reason for sin to have ever existed. If there was a reason for sin's existence, it would be God's fault. The Bible says you were created beautiful, perfect, in a perfect environment. You were loved. You were given the highest position any created being could be given Yet something mysterious happened inside of you. There was no reason for you to have felt discontentment, dissatisfied, or covetousness. There was no reason. Sin is an intruder that God never meant, never desired to exist in the universe. Not just on planet Earth. This whole mess, did it begin on Earth? It began where? In heaven, and it began with one of the highest created beings possible. It's a painful account. You were perfect in your ways till iniquity was found in you, and that iniquity was you have said in your heart, I will be like the most high, which is a, a, a contradiction. Ezekiel says, You were perfect in your ways from the days you were created. Here we have a creature going through a thought process in which a creature eventually comes to the conclusion, I am the creator. I can take the place of my creator. It is a self-delusional, self-destructive train of thought. There's only one who, have, who could create anything, which is God himself. Yet Lucifer began to entertain thoughts that caused him to accept a reality that totally contradicts anything truthful, anything real where the creature seeks worship and homage rather than giving it to the one that is worthy and deserving of it. 
This is how the Bible describes this war in heaven. That's why this is at the center of the book of Revelation, because it begins to answer some of the biggest questions that haunt humanity. The unwarranted questionings of God's character of love. The contradicting desire of a created being wanting to be worshipped as the creator. The dark reasonings that led him to believe he was who? God. If you go to the Gospel of Matthew chapter 4, you read a dialogue between this being and Jesus himself. In John chapter 1, Jesus is introduced as, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Jesus was God. And in Matthew chapter 4, in the third temptation, this being, this enemy, this adversary looks at Jesus and says, Look at the kingdoms of this world. I would give you all of these if you bow down and do what to me? Worship. What a self-deluded condition to find yourself that you are face-to-face with your Creator and you're telling your Creator to come and worship you. That is the destruction, the deception, the consumption and destruction of sin upon the mind of this being called Lucifer. It is a serious condition. The highest created being made perfect and holy allowed the, the mystery of sin. That's what the Bible defines it, the mystery of iniquity. We are not given a reason why because there was no reason. There was no excuse for anyone to ever rebel against a God of love, the God of Scripture. Lucifer chose a path that was wholly unwarranted, wholly unjustified. Allow the mystery of sin to take sin in his mind and heart. He grew to covet the worship God alone is worthy of. He declared God war on God. It wasn't that God picked on him. He picked it against God. He rebelled against God and sought to bring this rebellion to full fruition to try to cause every being in heaven to rebel against God. He wasn't successful in deceiving all the beings in heaven, but tragically the book of Revelation chapter 12 says that he brought a third of those beings with him. Which means that Satan lie, Satan's lies can be so subtle, so masterful, that even the minds of these perfect holy beings could be deceived by his lies. And tonight, my friends, whose minds are more powerful, the human mind or the minds of angels? Amen. And if their minds can be deceived, what about ours? Which again highlights what I mentioned last night. In order for us to understand Scripture, our utmost attitude ought to always be humility. Because what brought Satan down, you saw it, right? I, I will ascend. I, 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 I. Satan's problem was that sin was birthing pride in his heart. And that's what blinded him. The book of Proverbs says that after pride comes a fall. And we need to maintain and sustain an attitude of humility towards God. He declared war on God. So we, we covered briefly, if there are more questions, like I said, there's a piece of paper in, in your tables. If there are other questions that I haven't touched, please do not hesitate to write those down, and I will ha- gladly sit with you. But I have attempted my best to try to answer the question, why there was war in heaven? But we are still left with a second question. If he was so evil and so destructive and so deceptive, why send him down here? Right? Get him away from the angel. That's right. But why here, you know? Genesis 2, 16 through 17. This is right after God finishes creating our planet, creating human, the humanity. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, what will happen to you? 
you will surely die. Um, and I think my batteries have died. <laughs> uh, there they are again, but it shut off by itself. Maybe we have extra batteries. Maybe we want to have them in hand. Let me know if you can't hear me anymore, okay? Maybe we'll take a little break and swap them now. Let's just do it now. Okay. All right. Fresh batteries. God is... All right. Well, you won't forget about this part of the presentation. Um, God is speaking a reality to humanity. I am a God of love. But you have to keep in context where in universal history this is happening. I'm going to ask you a question that will cause you to think right now. This is Genesis. Has the war in heaven, is that war still to happen in the future, or has it happened already? It has already happened already because we know that in just a little bit, who's going to be hanging around this tree of the knowledge of good and evil? That serpent. That serpent, who we know... Behind that serpent was who? Satan. So before God created our world, this war had already taken place. And God's character had been called into question whether he was a God of love. And God creates this perfect, beautiful universe, this world, rather, with creatures and beings and plants and fruits and all anything the human heart could ever desire or ever want. He creates men and women, gives them to each other, creates a beautiful institution of marriage, family, love, everything that truly satisfies the human heart deeply, God has provided in abundance. Genesis chapter 1 finishes with God surveying everything He has created, and it's not simply good. The Bible says it is very good. So God says, look what I've done for you, look what I've given for you. But I'm going to ask that this tree, please don't touch it. Don't eat from it. If you eat from it, what's going to happen to you? Like this mic, right? You're going to... Who would humanity trust? Who would humanity put their allegiance towards? Would they remain faithful to God? Then the serpent said to the woman, what are the first words out of Satan's mouth? You will not surely die. God said, you will, you shall surely die. Direct contradiction. You will not surely die for who knows? God knows. This is a very powerful dialogue that takes place right here. For God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you'll become like who? Now, the enemy sees that God has cast good seed. So the enemy comes and casts what kind of seeds? Evil seeds. But these seeds come in the form of words. Words that enter into the mind and causes 
questions to arise. Doubt. Thank you. God knows that in the day that you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God. What is Satan insinuating by the statement, God knows the day that you eat of it, your eyes will be opened? He's trying to keep something from you. God is hiding. Now, Satan has said you will naturally die. God knows. So now we have at least two different attributes that are being portrayed about God. God has lied to you. And God is insecure. He feels threatened by you. He has withheld information from you. He's trying to keep you from the very thing that will make you your true destiny. I'm here to tell you that if you eat of this fruit, you will be like who? Who really wants to be like God? Who is the one that really wanted to be like God? Satan. He is projecting his own warped sense of thinking and trying to infect the minds of the human race. Who would humanity trust? So the woman took of its fruit and ate. She also gave to her husband, and they both made a choice. Something that gets overlooked about God is something that maybe because of the Bible's mentioning about his grand power, he opens seas, he causes water to gush out of rocks, he raises the dead, and he he describes himself almighty, all-powerful, but something that is always ever-present is that God is love. And the fact that God is love demands freedom. You cannot have love unless you have freedom of choice which presents God as an amazing God. He does not create computers. He does not create robots. I'm using my phone right now to help with the recording, but at this point of the presentation, I would always hold my phone up, and it's an iPhone. You can do this with Android, too, and some of you know what I'm about to to do. I, I would say, hey, Siri, do you love me? And you know what Siri will respond? You're looking for love in all the wrong places. Yeah. <laughs> I know that because I've asked her. <laughs> yeah, it sounds like a country song. Now, perchance, I could call Apple and say, hey, that was cute, but it kind of hurt my achy, breaky heart. <laughs> Can you program Siri to say, I love you. You are the best owner ever. So the coders down on Apple, download, there's an update now. Ask Siri, Siri, do you love me? I sure do. (laughs) Does Siri love me? I'm making Siri say I love you. Does Siri love me? No. And God does not create like that. When he creates his beings, he always leaves the door open for them to doubt distrust, and question, even rebel. That's the amazing reality of the God of Scripture. He has not rigged the universe to go His way. He has not rigged things so that everybody obeys His voice and just does what He wants. God is love, and because God is love, He has gifted every single one of His creatures the gift of freedom. The war in heaven was fought in the same manner as on earth, the Garden of Eden. God's character of love was put in question. Does anyone know what kind of a serpent this is? It's a black mamba. It looks pretty mean. 
from Africa. If you ever see the snake, it's good that you recognize the outside of it because if you're seeing the black mouth of it, you're dead. Because if, if it bites you, actually it will bite you a couple of times. It's not like your average snake that they bite and run away. This one will pursue you and keep biting you, and you until you stop moving. So it's a fitting emblem of why um, a, the Bible would use this animal to represent Satan because Satan had venomous words. The poison was in his words. And humanity became infected by it, and becoming infected, we joined in the rebellion. Through poisonous words, doubts about whether God was a God of love were craftily and subtly expressed. Humanity fell for it. And so at this point, I always asked my dad, because my dad was a missionary, and I remember my dad trying to explain to me why was there evil. And at that time in my life, I asked him, why are bullies allowed? Dad, I hate bullies. They take my bike, they pop my balloons, they're always pushing me around. Why does Jesus not help? Why, why did he create bullies? Then when I found out about Lucifer, I asked my dad this question, Dad, when, when God saw that Satan was just going down south, why didn't God just poof? Because then this would have gone away too. Why didn't God just destroy him? I mean, he's obviously rebelling. It's out. Why not just snuff him out? Well, I'm going to try to use this illustration, which is an illustration, okay? The pastor is stealing money, right? It does happen, but by God's grace, it hasn't happened with me. I'm happy with what I make. Um, but church members begin to whisper. And this one church member, Sally, tells Tim, did you know that the pastor bought a new car? How do you think he paid for that car? Did you know that sister so-and-so gave a sizable amount of offering last week? And now pastor's driving a new car? Pastor's siphoning some of that stuff? And Tim hears that, and then he goes and tells Melody. Of course, this is a hypothetical situation. This never happens in church. And word gets around, and finally it gets to the pastor's ears that the church members and visitors and everybody's a pastor stealing. The pastor begins to ask questions and finds out that all of these rumors have begun with Sally. And so Sally shows up dead. All right. So I have a question for you. Problem solved? There won't be any more rumors, right? Pastor will get up to church and say, okay, and I heard there were some people asking questions. Any, anyone else here? I know where you live. Good, no more questions. Satan had already spread the doubts about God. Had God destroyed him, would that have solved the problem? Would that have made things better or worse? Worse, because now the other angels would have been like, Whoa, he just snuffed him out. Shape up, watch out. We thought we knew God, but we don't. Fear. Fear never leads to love. When I proposed to my wife in Pennsylvania 12 and a half years ago, it was just me and her. I'd taken her out to eat. 
I'd already been giving her flowers. It was a special moment. I thought I, I was in my mid, past my mid-30s. I didn't want to waste much time. <laughs> but I waited for the right moment. And I looked at Daleen and I said, honey, will you marry me? And then I pulled out my Glock and cocked it and I pointed at her. <laughs> and she said yes. Is that how it went? No, no guns. <laughs> no gun because if she would have said yes, would she have meant it? No. And if she was going to say yes, <laughs> she would have said yes and then called 911, right? As soon as she was out of the car. Fear will never lead to love. And the Bible says that God is love, which means that God gives freedom, which means that God knew that if he destroyed Lucifer when he was starting this war in heaven, it would have made the whole thing worse. God had to give it time. And in the parable, we didn't have time to read it, of the sower, where the sower cast good seed, and the servant says, do you want us to tear the, the, the tears out, pull them out? He says, give it time. Let the tares grow with the wheat. So God had to give the universe time and earth time so that the entire universe could see that the seed that he had cast had always been good. That the things that God had been created were good and very good. That Lucifer had been created perfect, but he had made choices. And God honored those choices. So it meant rebelling against the God that loved him. So this idea of destroying Satan is not an idea that the Bible presents as a doable. God is love. And that's the reason why the invitation of the scriptures is to love him back. When God says that he is love, he implies that there's freedom behind that love. And I believe that the enemy doesn't want this presentation to go the way that it's supposed to. There is this statement, God has abandoned us to the evil and suffering that he has created, that he has caused. During the 60s and 70s, the idea that God is dead arose, and many people today want God dead. They don't even care. This is the lie about God, and you say, Pastor, who's lying about God like this? Your insurance companies does. One example. I remember I bought my first cell phone in Verizon in Columbus, Ohio, and I was reading through the warranty, and it said, if your phone gets struck by lightning, we're not responsible. That was an act of God. All these atheistic lawyers are trying to find ways for Verizon to cop out from paying me a new cell phone, and they blame it on God. This is a secular institution that has no bearings on any kind, anything that is spiritual. But here they are using God as the reason why severe calamity has taken place in my life. These are all acts of God. These are all acts of God. This is the reason why we cannot cover you. God has done this to you. God has created this. God has created this. God is responsible for this. This is all God's doing. And humanity, many Christians, do not know how to answer this, these false charges against God. This is a painful one. Last year, we had to bury an eight-month-old baby with brain tumors, one of the most painful funerals I've ever done in my entire time as a pastor. 
And this question lingered deeply in the family and friends, especially those that had never set foot in church. Now they had questions. And they had strong emotions of anger against God. Why would God do something to a little baby, an innocent child like this? God has abandoned us. Well, this is how the Bible responds to it. Isaiah 53, prophetic statement about God himself. This is the truth about God. He is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The punishment of our peace was upon him. And by his stripes, we experienced what? Healing. God answered these charges with Jesus. That's why in the Gospel of John, he is called the Word. God spoke through his Son. And through his son, he took all the suffering of humanity, all the, the consequences of the curse of sin, all of the heartache and grief that we experience, and pile it all upon Jesus. All the punishments, all the bruises, all the wounds were placed upon Jesus so that through the death of his son on the cross, you and I could experience healing. Listen carefully. Not healing from cancer, not healing from leukemia, not healing from AIDS. Healing of the soul. Healing of the lie. What has caused all of this is what God said in the Garden of Eden. The day that you eat from it, that's the day the human race will begin to experience death. And death, before it happens, brings a lot of suffering. As a nurse, I got to see a lot of that. Both in hospice, oncology, all of those departments, NICU, And all of that because humanity made a choice to distrust God's love and made a choice against Him. And in doing so, humanity made a crazy decision. I'm going to be alive apart from the life giver. Boom! God's not to blame. But how does God respond? He enters into the human experience Himself. He takes upon Himself our eternal destiny places all that guilt and shame upon himself, dies on the cross, pays for the penalty, and offers us a second chance, an opportunity to say, hold on a second. This God does not sound anything like the God that I've been pawned off by the enemy. This God is willing to suffer and sacrifice for me. This is not the God I had expected. This is a God that truly is a God of love. He doesn't just speak about it. By this we know love because Jesus did what? He laid down his life for us. God did not answer with merely words. He answered with actions. The truth about God is that he suffered with us. He suffered for us. So, we, so he could save us. 
from the entrance of sin, listen carefully, from the entrance of sin into the universe, the only one who has suffered the most from its destructive effects has been who? God. In the same manner that if you, have, if you were to get cancer, you would be miserable. But if your five-year-old got cancer, would you suffer the same? Would it be worse? It's worse when you see someone that you love suffer. And God got to see all of his creatures, the ones that he had declared very good, rebel against him and bear the consequences. God is not in heaven enjoying the bliss. He is very attentive to our suffering. He has come down here and experienced it all for us. Which provokes in us the ability to respond like this. With this pain, through my tears, in the storm, I can still believe that God is love. My external circumstances no longer affect or dictate to me how I believe about God or how I believe He relates to me. One of the stories that I became acquainted with several years ago was about this young man named Nick McNaughty. Some of you may have known about him. I'm going to share with, I'm going to actually let him share with us this evening his journey. What word would you use to describe how you feel right now? What word? Tomorrow will bring. Okay, I'm either hit the, hit the world or hit the world. 
in my family and friends. Because one of them was boy was picking out. And I was so concerned and focused on that. And then that happened. And I could just see that point. How can someone say, I still love God, while knowing he will not get to raise his little girl? Brother Nick passed away January 7, 2014, still believing that the God his worship, he worshiped was a God of love, which means that he never doubted that God loved him. This is the healing that we get from Jesus. He heals our minds from the lies of the enemy. This video inspired me so much. I don't want this man's story to be forgotten because if you came here questioning whether God loved you, you can leave tonight assured that no matter what calamities may be afflicting you or your loved ones, the God of heaven he loves you.
He loves you. God suffers for you. God suffers with you. And God does love you. There's a song that I learned when I was little. I learned it in Spanish. Then I learned it in English. And tonight I would like to have a special music to close this evening. And we're all going to sing it. How many of you guys know this song? Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Debbie's going to lead us out in the song. I hope I can carry the tune. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Little ones to Him belong, they are weak, but He is strong. Yes, Jesus loves me, yes, Jesus loves me, yes, Jesus loves me. The Bible tells me so. Father, such a simple song, but sometimes it's been hard for us to sing it and believe it. My prayer is, Lord, that tonight we can live our lives the way our brother Nick lived and ended his never doubting that we worship a God of love, never doubting, Lord, in spite of the suffering on this planet, never choosing to believe the lie of the enemy, but rather choosing to believe what your word says about you, that Jesus loves me. And the reason we know that is because the Bible tells us so. And tonight we have seen that you are a God of love, Father, I pray you heal my brothers and sisters' hearts, those that have come with a broken heart because of the pain and the suffering, whether in health or our loved ones. Father, heal us. Heal our souls tonight through your living word that we can sing this song with the conviction and the assurance that we are singing the truth about you, that you are a God of love and that we know that. Because the Bible tells us so. In Jesus' name, amen, Lord. Amen.